It was the year of 1920 down in West by God, Virginia. Mingo County made one town, it was a scene. Hard-working minded families were pushed beyond their point of breaking. Desperation, fear, and hunger turned to me. You might take their only way to make a all pull their guns and start shooting at each other. When all was said and done, Ken and lay dead in the street. On May 19, 1920, a deadly shootout took place in Matewan, West Virginia, between striking Union miners led by police chief Sid Hatfield and coal company agents. Ten died, including seven agents. Record West Virginia launched their show last year for the retelling of this famous battle. By the end of it, at least 20,000 workers took part, and it included uh, restaurant workers, the streetcar workers broke their contract in order to participate in the general strike. It included building tradesmen, bakers joined the general strike. And so it encompassed most of the trade union movement and likely a lot of the ununionized workers in Kansas City as well. And just two years earlier, a general strike took place in Kansas City in 1918, sparked by solidarity between black and white women workers. Our labor forms Judy and Sell brings us the story of this important but little-known moment in labor history. And on Labor History in Two, the year was 1934. That was the day the Lucas County Sheriff ordered an attack on thousands of electric auto light strikers and unemployed league supporters, touching off the six-day Battle of Toledo. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. For certain whose gun started all the killing When it was over, ten men lay dead on the ground the first casualties and victims of a war fought in them mountains. It all started there in bloody made one town. You might take their only way to make a living. Got this grip on by the key to heaven's door. You push a mighty man around, he will put you in the ground. Made one town will never be the same no more. Welcome to Record West Virginia, where we take a weekly look into the history, folklore, wildlife, and people that make the Mountain State great. I'm Cody Knapper, and this week we are in Mingo County, exploring the 100th year anniversary of the Battle of Matewan, a bloody clash between disgruntled coal miners and the members of the infamous Baldwin Fells Detective Agency. In the spring of 1920, tension along with coal dust hung in the air across southern Appalachia. After decades of despotism, at the hands of companies like the Stone Mountain Coal Corporation, the miners had finally had enough. Emboldened and encouraged by the success of strikes in other regions, recently elected President of the United Mine Workers of America, John L. Lewis, 
saw an opportunity to unionize the coal fields of West Virginia. In the coal companies, first thing you've got to know about coal is that the entire industrial revolution ran on coal. If you don't have coal, you don't have an industrial revolution. And the coal in, in southern West Virginia and this, this part of the country was what drove the, the growth that happened in the Northeast around New York and everywhere. So it was vital to all the progress that America was trying to make. You had to have it. When the coal companies came in here, they had to build everything. They had to build the towns from scratch, the railroads to get in. They, uh, they created what were called coal camps. And a coal camp was basically, you would build all the houses that the, for the coal miners. You would build a baseball field for them to play at, a theater for them to go to the movies a little bit later, a church, a school, a company store for them to shop at. Everything the company built and controlled. And when it was done, it was just a way, it was a convenience because there was nothing else around. You had to build it all for them. But later on, it became a tool to manipulate the miners. The miners were completely controlled by the coal companies and the coal company owners, especially here in the coal company communities of southern West Virginia and the coal fields. The coal company operators would go up to Ellis Island and they would bring in immigrants off the boat and they would promise them the American dream. And what they really ended up getting was as close to slavery as it, as it could be without it being called slavery. And so what happened in, uh, in the Maitland area in, in southern West Virginia is that eventually uh, conditions got so bad that they started looking at the Union. Now, this is how bad conditions had to get. You were a coal miner who lived in a coal company house. The money you were paid was an artificial currency called scrip that could only be used at that company store. All your friends, everybody you knew, were working for the coal company. And so if you joined a union, you were kicked out of the, of, the, of the mine, you were kicked out of your home, you couldn't even go into the company store to buy food or even get your U.S. mail because that's where it came. With the help of activist Mary Harris Jones, better known by the moniker Mother Jones, the UMWA was able to organize miners across the state, including many that worked for the Stone Mountain Coal Corporation and made one. This led to retaliation by the company, who had responded with mass firing of the miners who had signed union cards, effectively evicting them from the company-owned houses they occupied in the Stone Mountain Coal Camp. However, some of the fired miners refused to vacate their homes. So these miners were, were, were body and soul uh, controlled by the coal companies. So they had an enormous amount to, to lose if they, if they joined a union. But it got so bad that the people here did that. They joined a labor union. And as a result of that, they were kicked off their job and were, were going to be thrown out of their houses. They hired a, a, what were called company thugs. They were basically private military. People might have heard of Blackwater and, and, and organizations like that. It was a private military. And it was called the Baldwin Phelps Detectives. Uh, another one that was more well known, the name might be remembered, are the Pinkertons. So they were like the Pinkertons. But in the coal fields, and especially in the east, the Baldwin Fels detectives were the ones that were used the most often. And these Baldwin Fels detectives came in to, to the Maitland area to begin evicting miners from their homes. By the morning of May 19, 1920, when around a dozen agents from the Baldwin Fels Detective Agency rolled into town, the tension had become combustible. Led by Albert Feltz, the armed agents carried out evictions in the Stone Mountain Coal Camp on behalf of the company. 
The news about the removal of the miners and their families from their homes soon spread across town. Maitwan's mayor, C.C. Testerman, along with the town's chief of police, Sid Hatfield, confronted the agents on their way out of town. Maitwan was not a company town. Maitwan was an independent town. It had an independent sheriff uh, and a mayor. And it was not completely controlled by the coal companies the way most towns were. Well, the mayor realized that there was a technicality, that they were supposed to give 48 hours of written uh, advance notice and hadn't done that. And so he sent a message to the uh, sheriff who was in Williamson to get an arrest warrant for these, these people who were doing these, uh, these evictions incorrectly. Now, the company, the Baldwin Fells Detectives, that, that company thought that this event was so important that the owner sent his two brothers to lead it. And when the arrest warrant is coming in on the 5 o'clock train to stop these evictions, and these guys are also leaving on the 5 o'clock train, and so the two groups meet, C.C. Uh, Testerman and uh, Sid Hatfield, and then they had a bunch of miners who were hid around the area because they figured there was going to be trouble. On May 19, 1920, the Baldwin Phelps Detectives Agency had been evicting the coal miners from their coal company-owned homes. On their way back through town, after eating lunch at the Uri's Hotel, they were on their way back to the depot to board the train to go back to Bluefield. On the way, Sid Hatfield met them on the corner of the street here in front of the Old Chambers Hardware Store, and there was a discussion, and the discussion became heated to the point where the mayor stepped in. Sid, in turn, said that he had an arrest warrant for the Baldwin Feltz detectives. The Baldwin Feltz detectives take a look at it and says, we'll do you one better. We've got a warrant for your arrest. They pull out this arrest warrant, and the, and the mayor took it, and he read the warrant, and he said, well, this is bogus and illegal. It was issued in another county. It's not valid here. And they all pulled their guns and started shooting at each other. When all was said and done, ten men lay dead in the street. And to this day, no one's really sure who who fired first. It's a hundred-year-old mystery. And so uh, all this gunfire happens, and right at that moment, the train pulls in. It's a passenger train. And everybody's looking out the window, and here are these miners. They're pumping bullets into the dead bodies of these Baldwin Fels detectives. They're beating them. They're dragging them around. And uh, Mingo County, where, where this, this is happening, got the nickname Bloody Mingo as a, as a result of that event. You have to understand why these miners reacted in this way. There were years of frustration. These Baldwin Fels detectives were leg breakers that had been gone throughout the country and were always successful. They, they would come in, the local law enforcement would step aside and the Baldwin Fels would take over. They murdered people, they beat people, they were never arrested. And so people were terrified of them. Uh, they also hated them. And so that was why you had such a visceral reaction to these Baldwin Fels detectives in Mate One. While it is still unknown who exactly shot first, when the gun smoke cleared, 10 people in total were dead. Seven Baldwin Feltz detective agents, including Albert and Lee Feltz, and three residents of the town, including two miners and Mayor Testerman were all slain. The massacre and Mate One further fueled efforts to organize miners throughout the state's coal fields and would be far from the last clash to turn deadly in what is now known as the West Virginia Mine Wars. Hatfield was charged with murder but acquitted by a jury. He gained a level of fame after his involvement in the Mate One Massacre and continued to support the efforts of miners to organize until he was assassinated on the courthouse steps in Welch, West Virginia by several detectives from the Baldwin Feltz Agency. 
all the UMW and all the, the t labor union uh, heads came here to visit Sid Hatfield, and he became famous because he was the first guy to stand up to these hated Baldwin Phelps detectives and get the better of them. We don't know who was the first person to pull, a, pull the trigger, but uh, because there were so many of them, they basically, it was, it was for all intents and purposes, an ambush. And it looks really bad for uh, Sid Hatfield and, and the other miners. But it goes to the jury, and the jury finds them not guilty. And uh, the owner of the Baldwin Phelps Detective Agency was furious at this. And so they, they got these trumped up charges in McDowell County where they basically controlled everything. And Sid Hatfield had to go to McDowell County to stand for these charges. And Sid and his wife and Ed Chambers, who was kind of his right-hand man and his, and his wife, went there. They got off the train. They were walking up the courthouse steps in McDowell County in Welch. And five Baldwin Phelps detectives came out and murdered them, gunned them down in cold blood. Didn't kill the wives, but killed both of the men. Then they turned around with their guns and shot the wall so it looked like there was return fire and then put their guns in the hands of the two dead men. And as a result of that, Sid Hatfield is dead. Sid Hatfield has become a hero throughout the country in this intervening time. And when he is murdered in cold blood in broad daylight in this fashion, it infuriates coal miners and other workers throughout the country. And they start amassing and marching to West Virginia. If the Battle of Blair Mountain was the bomb, the events that took place here in Mate One were the spark that lit the flame. Sid Hatfield became a legend. He was a local hero to the miners that day. And even to this day, his name is still legendary in this town. When you say the name Sid Hatfield, that, that evokes a sense of pride in the people of the surrounding area, especially if they are of coal mining descent, which most of us are. Even today, a hundred years later, I don't know of one single man that's worked in a coal mine that hasn't came out a different person. Like if you go into a coal mine here, you're going to come out different one way or another. Like broken or beaten or battered, but hardened in some way. And you see that on these people here. And you notice that in their faces and in their stories and in their histories. And without the union, they would be still struggling. 100 years later, the impact of the Battle of Mate 1 and the West Virginia Coal Wars as a whole still resonate throughout a state where coal mining is the backbone of the economy. Thank you so much for watching this episode of Record West Virginia, and please give us a like, share, and subscribe to our channel. Thanks for watching. The miners down in Mingo laid their shovels down. We won't pull another pillow out another ton or lift another finger till the union we have won. Stand up, boys, let the bosses know. Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low. There's fire in our hearts and
and far in her soul, but there ain't gonna be no far in the hole. A bet this cold will kill me for my working days is through In a hole that's dark and dirty and early grave confined I plan to make a union for the ones I leave behind Stand up, boys, let the bosses know Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low Far in her hearts and far in her soul But there ain't gonna be no far in the hole There ain't gonna be no far in the hole FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. Hi, this is Judy Ansel. In April, Jeff Stilley, who grew up in Lee Summit, was awarded his doctorate in sociology after submitting his dissertation to the thesis committee at the University of Missouri-Columbia. His thesis has a title that screams boring, Solidarity Infrastructure, Gender and Race Solidarity and Cross-Class Coalitions in the Kansas City General Strike of 1918. I've been reading it, and it's anything but boring. It's full of colorful stories as it gives us a history of the Kansas City working class and the construction of class solidarity from the 1880s through the unprecedented and nationally significant general strike of 1918. One of my great takeaways from it was how different our labor movement was in those days, how diverse, 
bringing together black and white, women workers with men, even rich allies, and also how central it was to the politics of the day. Jeff's mission in writing it was to explain how the solidarity infrastructure of that era came to be. He asked questions like that because he's a sociologist, but his thesis should definitely get published so those of us today interested in how to build broad working class solidarity can learn the lessons left to us by our ancestors. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum, Jeff. Thank you very much for having me. So first off, congratulations on your doctorate. Thank you. So tell us, how and why did you get interested in exploring this question? Well, my advisor, Dr. Victoria Johnson, wrote a book comparing the 1934 San Francisco general strike and the 1919 Seattle general strike. And in her book, she lists all the general strikes in U.S. history. And on the list was Kansas City in 1918. And being that I'm from the area, um, I just thought that was kind of interesting in passing. I hadn't heard of it. So I looked a little bit into it and didn't find a whole lot of information and for a while kind of assumed that maybe it wasn't that interesting, but we had just gone through a unionization uh, campaign here at Mizzou among graduate student workers. So I was kind of in that mindset of a union campaign, and the more I looked into it, uh, the more fascinated I got and the more I wanted to tell that story. That's great. Well, it's great to know that the unionization of the grad students at, at Columbia had this kind of an outcome. I mean, that's wonderful kind of convergence of, of two things. Describe for us what work was like 100 years ago or maybe 110 years ago in Kansas City and what kinds of jobs people had, what kinds of industries. So there were a lot of building trades workers. This was a heavily unionized uh, sector, um, a lot of uh, white men as well as black men going back to the 1870s. And you also had the meatpacking industry, which was the second largest in the world. It employed about 14,000 people. These were extremely dangerous jobs, very low paying jobs. Um, you also had women in commercial laundries, white and black women who were sometimes asked to stand on their feet for 12, 14 hours a day in extremely hot and dangerous working conditions. There were a lot of Teamster jobs, a lot of jobs working for the railroads at their warehouses. Um, so similar today with like Amazon uh, warehouse plants, there were a lot of those types of jobs. You also had a lot of office work. Um, Kansas City was a very middle class town, so a lot of office clerks and things of that nature. Kansas City was the second largest rail hub in the country, too. So we had tons of rail jobs. And we also had a, um, a Ford plant here, which started in 1912, the first auto plant we had here. Pretty diverse. I think most people assume that Kansas City was similar to other cities during the Jim Crow era. Segregated lives, segregated communities, segregated workplaces. Was this true for us here? Kansas City was extremely unique, in my opinion, in terms of racial demographics and racial politics leading up to World War One. So prior to World War One, most industrial cities in Kansas City had very low populations of African-American residents. So even in New York and Philadelphia, which had large black communities, proportionally, they were extremely small. In Kansas City, it remained around 10% of the population from 1870 to 1920, 
which was very high for an industrial city. And it's important because black men on the Missouri side had the right to vote. Black men and women had the right to vote on the Kansas side. So because of those numbers, it, it was important for politicians to at least try to attract some black voters, which created some interesting dynamics. Another interesting point about Kansas City is that segregation among working class neighborhoods didn't fully take hold until the 1920s. So there were still very racially diverse working class neighborhoods throughout the 1910s. Um, transit was not segregated, so the streetcars did not have racial segregation. And places of work were also not as heavily segregated as they would later become. So white and black workers worked together on building construction sites, at meatpacking plants, and so forth throughout the 1910s. Much of that changed in the 1920s. Um, and prior to the 1910s, uh, from 1903 to 1910, um, there was a lot of white supremacist politics locally, which is important to note. But the 1910s was kind of the sweet spot where you didn't have intense segregation, um, either on the labor market, uh, relatively speaking, or in residential neighborhoods, and the politics were relatively open to the black community. Yeah, well, that's really interesting to know and also interesting to figure out how that changed as well. I know one of the people we can thank for that change is J.C. Nichols. There are many others who are guilty of that. So in some ways, waitress-turned-organizer Sarah Lloyd Green represents the uniquely intersectional movement that grew up during this time. Can you explain a little bit about her and how that movement developed? Sarah Green was the daughter of Welsh immigrants and uh, immigrants who were intensely committed to the union movement. Uh, her father was a coal miner. And she had a really, really powerful personality. She kind of dominated whatever room she was in. She had a really powerful speaking voice. And she worked as a waitress in Kansas City in the early 1910s. And waitresses at this time were very independent women. They tended to reject control over their lives by either men or upper class philanthropists. And she really took on that kind of ethos to heart in her daily life and in her union organizing. And throughout the mid to late 1910s, she worked on building support for the labor movement from club women. She would go to meetings of upper class elite club women who would be hosting local capitalists who would be talking about working conditions and how they treated their women employees. And Sarah Green would kind of sneak into the back of the room and jump up and basically start discussing the lies that the capitalist was um, spreading to the club women and telling the women the real wages and the real working conditions that were present in Kansas City. And through these types of activities, she ended up getting several club women, important club women like Phoebe S. to really become committed to a militant labor movement in Kansas City and to support strikes. And Sarah Green was also very adept at organizing working class women, which would could be very difficult during this time period because a lot of women only stayed in the labor market for a few years. And uh, it could be incredibly dangerous to 
oppose their bosses and to try to unionize uh, at this time period. So Sarah Green helped to build this movement that included working class women. It included upper class club women allies. She also in late 1917 helped to start a union of black domestic workers. And she had difficulties doing this herself, but she was able to talk to a lot of leaders in black churches and the African-American community and were able to convince them that black domestic workers could and should unionize and demand better wages and better working conditions. And that was very successful at the time. Wasn't she also involved at the AFL? The AFL, yes. Sarah Green was the president of the Waitresses Union, which was part of the AFL. She was president of the Kansas City branch of the Women's Trade Union League, which was an AFL-affiliated group nationally. And she was a constant presence at the Labor Temple. Uh, anytime there was a strike throughout the city, she was involved, whether it involved women workers or not. Being such a powerful speaker and committed to the cause, you know, she had no problem spending 18 hours a day on any given strike in meetings with workers or negotiating on behalf of workers' interests. We're talking to Jeffrey Stilley about his PhD dissertation on the solidarity infrastructure in the Kansas City General Strike. Well, it sounds like she was pivotal to this um, solidarity infrastructure you talk about so much in the thesis. How does that play into the development for the general strike? Yes, so the general strike in 1918 came in solidarity with women workers in the commercial laundry industry. In February of 1918, commercial laundry workers went on strike for union recognition. And Sarah Green was at the center of this strike from the very beginning. And she brought in support from these upper-class club women, um, some of which were involved on the Jackson County Council of National Defense. So it was kind of the local organizing group that managed the wartime economy. So these were women intimately involved with supporting the war effort, the ongoing war effort, and they really supported this laundry strike. After a couple weeks, the workers had shut down the laundry industry completely, but the owners were starting to bring in uh, highly paid strike breakers and private guards, armed private guards, and it was starting to become extremely violent. So the private guards would assault women on the picket line, and the women also would basically hide in the bushes throughout residential areas and assault these guards and delivery drivers in the streets of Kansas City. And the club women stuck with the strikers. I mean, they completely blamed the owners for the violence of the strike. And this was important because it helped extend the conflict beyond just the couple weeks that the workers were able to achieve on their own. There was a powerful employers association in Kansas City. I have a, a copy of a advertisement uh, back to work ad that was published in the Star, or the Journal Post, I'm not sure which, from the Employers Association, which which encompassed a lot of the elite business owners of Casey. How powerful were these guys? That's a great question. The Employers Association in Kansas City goes back to 1903. In the 1910s, they were quite powerful. I mean, they didn't encompass every businessman in Kansas City, but they encompassed um, hundreds of them, and they were quite militant themselves in terms of trying to break the union movement. 
And in fact, they were the ones funding these private guards for the laundry owners. And over the winter of 1917 and 1918, they basically publicly said that they were going to break whatever next strike occurs by any means necessary, no matter how much money it costs, no matter how much violence it would take, uh, they wanted to break the union movement. So they were really central to this conflict. They funded it. They endorsed it. Um, they had published dozens of these types of ads that you were just talking about in uh, September and October of 1917. Um, so they were really out there in the city trying to undermine the union movement that Sarah Green had helped build. You know, another thing to note about this laundry strike is that there were a lot of black women who were involved uh, working in the commercial laundries. And Sarah Green did her best to keep the white women workers acting in solidarity with their black coworkers. So for example, these club women held a hearing, a public hearing on the laundry strike at a hotel in downtown Kansas City where they were trying to collect information at the Muehlbach Hotel. And they were trying to pressure the mayor and the laundry owners into meeting with the strikers and to recognize the union and to sign a contract. And this was a Jim Crow segregated hotel. So the white women strikers came into the hotel, no problems. And they were about to start testifying as to working conditions. And they received word that black women strikers had been denied entry to the hotel. And Sarah Green told the white workers to leave in solidarity and they immediately did so. So. It, it sort of sounds to me from the newspaper reports like that was a planned thing, but it's it's hard to tell. Um, but the white workers stuck by them and were not willing to speak on behalf of their black coworkers. Okay, so this thing turns into a general strike. How did that happen? And also, can you mention the whole role of the streetcar workers? Okay, so the uh, there were three streetcar strikes between 1917 and 1919. This kind of kicked off a very militant labor movement during the war. And because the Employers Association were trying to help break this laundry strike, the labor movement felt really threatened by a potential loss in the commercial laundry strike. And they ended up deciding to authorize a general strike. And this was called mainly by the rank and file. So there were a couple of meetings at the labor temple where local labor leaders, as well as um, organizers from various union internationals, tried to ask the rank and file not to call a general strike, to tamp things down. And they were basically all booed off the podium anytime they would make these speeches. And so this general strike was authorized. It was supposed to start March 25th of 1918. They ended up doing a 48-hour delay to try to give the Employers Association a little bit more time to negotiate, which they were uninterested in doing. And so it started uh, March 27th of 1918, and it lasted a full week. And by the end of it, at least 20,000 workers took part, which is a pretty conservative estimate. And it included uh, restaurant workers, the streetcar workers broke their contract in order to participate in the general strike. It included building tradesmen, bakers, uh, who were considered a central part of the wartime domestic economy. Bakers joined the general strike. And so it encompassed most of the trade union movement, 
and likely a lot of the ununionized workers in Kansas City as well. So did they win? It ended in a truce, which is not a very exciting thing to say after all of this, but when you look at the history of general strikes in Kansas City, it's actually kind of amazing because a lot of them failed miserably and really destroyed kind of the labor movement momentum going into it. And when you consider that it was during a war, <laughs> um, it's actually kind of incredible that it was not broken entirely. So at the end of it, basically the Employers Association said that they would take back all of their old employees under their old contracts. So even though union workers had broken their contracts to take part in the general strike, the Employers Association said, okay, let's just reset. We'll go back to how things were. The laundry owners did not recognize the laundry union. They promised to raise wages. And that was basically the end of it. The rank and file were did not want to agree to those terms. Um, there was a lot of pushback. Most workers, from what I can tell, uh, wanted to keep the general strike going, but the Streetcar International basically said he would revoke the Streetcar Union's charter if they did not agree to these terms. So that's kind of how it ended. Basically, the laundry owners paid their workers higher for a couple weeks and then put the wages right back down. A lot of restaurant owners did not agree to those conditions, so they... Um, reopened without their old labor, uh, union contracts. Mainly the restaurant workers were hurt by the general strike outcome, but for the most part, things went back to how they were before. Very briefly, what should Kansas City Labor today learn from this? Kansas City Labor should learn that alliances and coalition building during um, quiet times, we could say, is really, really important. It's not just important when strikes happen to reach out to community allies. It's really, really important to reach out to different progressive groups, radical groups, and try to collaborate on different things, whether it's um, legislation at Jeff City or uh, election campaigns for local leaders. It's really important to start to build alliances um, with different organizations that might represent a progressive political position. It might represent immigrant workers. It might represent LGBTQ working class people. But to build a, a large labor movement across different identities, across different progressive and left political cultures, is really important to be able to uh, fight the boss when they go on the offensive. We're talking to Jeffrey Stilley about his PhD dissertation, Solidarity Infrastructure in the Kansas City General Strike. Thank you very much. Good evening and welcome to Remember Our Struggle. I'm Ariana Eckel Blockman, journeyman wireman of IBW Local 124. Tonight, I'm going to speak to you about the 1934 West Coast Waterfront Strike. We deal only as a district. We wanted a six hour day, a 30 hour week, $1 an hour, and the union hiring hall. We wanted the union hiring hall because of the shape up. These are the words of Harry Bridges, who was a driving force behind the waterfront strike. By only dealing as a district, they meant that they sought a contract for the entire coast. The workers had previously enjoyed a six hour day during the Great Depression to spread the work around to more hands, 
but later lost it during contract negotiations. The shape-up was the process by which workers got longshore work. In San Francisco, for instance, every morning hopeful workers would show up in front of the ferry building in order to beg and or bribe, payments known as kickbacks, their way into work. Having a union hiring hall with the union work dispatcher would change all of that. These weren't the only grievances of longshore workers at the time. Those who were lucky enough to get hired for the day found themselves working hours which regularly exceeded 12 hours per day under tremendous production pressure at extremely unsafe production speeds. It was common for crews of longshoremen to be organized in such a way that different nationalities and races of people were pitted against one another in the name of speeding up and productivity. Permanent career-ending injuries and deaths happened every day on the job. Those who were injured feared they would be replaced or blacklisted from the, from the industry if they reported their injuries because injuries raised the insurance rates of the employers. Remember, this was before the advent of shipping containers, so cargo was laboriously moved crate by crate by hand. Once a person survived the workday, they were typically paid in company script called brass checks. In order to get the cash value of this company script, one had to go to only a handful of dockside establishments. According to Harry Bridges again, near the shape-up, there were bootleg joints, establishments that served alcohol during alcohol prohibition, bookmaking joints, and pool rooms. We used to cash payroll brass checks at Patty Hurley's. Hurley did business with the company union, cashing brass checks. There were other guys that used to cash in brass checks and take a 20% payment. On top of that, to get your brass check cashed at Patty Hurley's, one had to buy a drink. The San Francisco employers even sponsored their own company-controlled union, referred to as the Blue Book, but its primary purpose was to keep real unionism out. The actions of the Albion Hall group in setting the stage for this strike, which was headed by Harry Bridges, is extensive and instructive enough to deserve its own show, and someday soon I will do one over it. But long story short, through the publication of a work newsletter and the establishment of ties of solidarity up and down the coast, the stage was set for the strike. The strike started May 9th. According to Harry Bridges, we'd get out there with our flag, our union banner, and I think we had a couple of drums to march along. Then the cops would move in and beat the out of us. Police brutality was a continuing problem throughout the strike, with strikers and supporters losing their lives in several participating cities. Despite this brutality, the use of scabs, the use of red baiting against radical union leaders, and more, the line was held until business leaders and police attempted to break the picket line blockade on July 5th, which would become infamously known as Bloody Thursday. Police rushed the line escorting scab trucks and began beating strikers with clubs and tear gassing them. Over a hundred participants were maimed and two lost their lives, including a striking longshoreman and a union cook who was working in the strike kitchen in solidarity. Their senseless slang galvanized the city and set hearts alight with defiance, leading to the 1934 San Francisco General Strike, which also deserves its own show. Across labor history, you see employers taking advantage of racial and ethnic divides to pit workers against one another. The longshoremen prevented the employers from attempting to hire African-American scabs by reaching out to the African-American community and, and promising non-discrimination in hiring policy if the strike was won, a promise that was kept. The longshoremen achieved their hiring hall by order of a federal arbitration board. They also got their coastwide contract and a 10 cent an hour raise, which brought their wage up to 95 cents an hour, roughly equivalent to $18 an hour in 2019's dollars. To this day, the ILWU continues to observe Bloody Thursday. In 2020, San Francisco Local 10 President Richard Mead said of Bloody Thursday, aren't we back under the thumb of the bankers and Wall Street as they pillage our tax dollars and pensions? 
Bloody Thursday is not about death, brothers and sisters. It's about life. That's it for the Heartland Labor Forum. Tune in next week. Our show is about the jobs guarantee. Is full employment possible? The Heartland Labor Forum is, is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Jen Zaman. in our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back too. Send us your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to heartlandlaborformkkfi at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming schedule, is heartlandlaborform.org. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening to the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 o'clock or to our Friday morning rebroadcast at 5 o'clock right here at 90.1 FM KKFI. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1934. That was the day the Lucas County Sheriff ordered an attack on thousands of electric auto light strikers and unemployed league supporters, touching off the six-day Battle of Toledo. The Toledo auto light strike was one of three historic strikes of 1934 that turned the tide favorably toward industrial organizing. The auto light company had granted a wage increase, but reneged on promises of a first contract that included seniority rights, a closed shop, and more. Workers walked off the job in mid-April. As the strike was about to collapse, unemployed league forces, organized by A.G. Musty's American Workers Party, joined picket lines in support. When legal wrangling failed to subdue the strike, scabs and deputized specials were amassed. And on this day, the picket lines grew to as many as 10,000. Deputies began arresting strike leaders and attacking picketers with fire hoses, tear, and vomit gas. Historian Brian Palmer describes the scene this way. Angry workers laid siege to the factory. 1,500 strike breakers were imprisoned. 
The scene was one of almost medieval tumult. Windows were smashed with stones and bricks, many of them launched from giant slingshots improvised from rubber inner tubes. When every window in the factory had been smashed, one striker shouted, Now you have your open shop. The next day, 900 Ohio National Guardsmen arrived on the scene. Women jeered the landing of the Marines, while soapboxers, many of them veterans, sporting First World War medals, offered impromptu lectures on how the troops were breaking the strike. The strikers' ranks faced a hail of Guardsmen bullets, which left two dead and scores wounded. The battle raged on until the end of May, when it was clear a general strike was imminent. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. Albert C. Phelps rode into town on the Bluefield train that morning. A band of pistol packing agents by his side. They threw families from their homes onto the street without no warning. But they didn't know that it was their last ride. You might take their only way to make a living. Up this strip won't buy the key to heaven's door. You push a That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app, and we hope you do even better. If you like what you hear, please like it in your podcast app and pass it along to everybody you know. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Our music today included the Matewan Massacre by Hammertown and Fire in the Hole by Hazel Dickens. As cultural blogger John Pietaro noted, Dickens didn't just sing the anthems of labor, she lived them, and her place on many a picket line staring down gunfire and goon squads embedded her into the cause. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmenovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pazza, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history and see you next time. You might take their only way to make a living. Up this script won't buy the key to heaven's door. You push a pilot man around, he will put you in the ground. Made one town will never be the same no more.